Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What would it be like for you if you were deaf? If you could not speak your first word until you were six? If you had three years or so of education and your first language, sign language that is, was German, and then you later emigrated to another country where they speak English? Ingelor is the first name of a woman who was born in Germany in 1924 and came to America in 1940 at the beginning of the Third Reich, right after Kristallnacht. The film Ingelor was made by her son, Frank Stifel, and it tells his mother's story. I'd like to begin with what Ingelor says at the very beginning of the movie about her life. Part of what you will hear is her ability to articulate words in English, which I want you to remember she cannot hear. What she says later on in the film is that I'm very angry. Bear that in mind and also listen at the end of our conversation where we will hear some parting words from Ingalore in which she says, I am very happy. I am no longer angry. Listening to your mother speak in the film that you made, it's possible after a little bit to understand what she's saying, uh, certainly with the assistance at the front end with the subtitles. Can you tell us how it was that she learned to enunciate and articulate sounds that uh, I believe at first were in German and then later in English? Actually, you, you hit on the one, the one thing that I struggled with uh, in, the, in the one big decision that I struggled with. My first instinct was not to use subtitles at all. And my sense was that, you know, that, that the audience would, would be affected by this queer, high-sounding voice at the beginning. But what does happen very quickly is that uh, you become accustomed to it. 
And while there are times where her sentence construction is a little bit awkward, um, there are a couple of times where she mispronounces words. The fact is that hearing people come to understand her quite well. Uh, at the end of the day, I decided to put in subtitles, and I, it was the right decision in that I, I think that the viewer relaxes a bit, uh, knowing that if they don't catch exactly what she's saying, uh, they can read it. And the film, in part, deals with how she learned how she learned simple things, how to, how to say the letter A, how to say the letter B, the most rudimentary forms of communication, and then having learned how to, to say the, how to say, uh, sound, how to, how to use sound, she realized that she had no connection to what any of these sounds meant. She had no way to put them together as words. And when she put them together as words, she realized she had no idea what these words meant. So her entire early part of her life was about finding a way to be understood. And she speaks about the first six, seven years of her life. All she did was scream. Uh, she had no other way to, uh, to let people know anything. And so uh, she was angry. She was frustrated. She had no possible way to make anybody understand what she was thinking or feeling. And then the, she did go to school for a very, very short time. She went to school in Germany for about a year before Kristallnacht and interrupted that. And then came to America at the age of uh, 16 in 1940. To me, the greatest mystery is how she learned to speak a language that she never, ever heard. German was her first language. Imagine having to learn a second language and having never heard it. And you'll notice that she speaks without an accent. And so I don't quite, I can't quite tell you how that worked. The meanings of the words, how was she able to identify the, the feeling, presumably in her vocal cords, that meant a certain concept? Well, part of that was schooling. And again, in the film, we show how she was taught that certain words um, could be related to certain pictures. And so really rudimentary education. Things get more difficult and more subtle once you start asking for her to describe something emotional. That's a conversation that is easily had with people who, who are also deaf. She's very much part of, uh, of, of a deaf culture, but she, she never ran away from being part of the hearing world. And so she's, uh, she's very, very likely to, to meet somebody new and start a conversation with them and, and not be afraid that they're going to shun her because she can't hear. Well, she presents as an extremely proud person in the film, Ingalore. And that obviously had an effect on you. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> this is such a twisted issue. She's an amazing, an amazing person. And, and I would say that if I had just met her. Most people that I meet are frightened of other people in one way or another. They're certainly frightened to be vulnerable. They're frightened to, uh, to, to reveal that, uh, you know, that something might be less than 100%. Uh, she doesn't have that fear and has never gone through life feeling that. And so she, she's very, very open to whoever, and, and without judgment, uh, to whoever is around. She's curious. She wants to know your story. She wants to know more about you. And she will engage. She's an amazing person. It, it took me a long time to, to, to work out as an adult 
that while I had uh, a really difficult time being the oldest child of, uh, of, of deaf parents, I had to make the distinction between the issues of deafness and the quality of the parenting that I got. My parents were excellent and committed. And despite having a significant handicap while operating in, in a world that doesn't quite understand what to do with deaf people, they were very, very good and, uh, and loving parents. There were obligations that I, particularly as the oldest child, had that were unique to just about any other family. You know, I'm not sure anybody gets, anybody gets out of childhood without a little bit of scar tissue. There's a, a different kind of scar tissue when you become the responsible one, when you become the one that hears. The film doesn't reveal to the extent that you just did that your father, too, was deaf. Yeah, there is a, uh, there, there's a, a short section that deals with it where she relates what their first meeting was like, and he was dating her, her cousin who was hearing, and she said, wait a minute, what are you dating her for? And so um, it's, it's, it's a very light comedic moment in the film. Um, and, uh, and, and my mother's hearing, like many deaf people, is they, they lose their high and lows. At, you know, they lose their entire middle, uh, middle range, and they have some degree of highs or lows. And we show you that, actually. We play a piece of music and, and put it against her hearing charts so that you know exactly how she would be hearing that piece of music. My father, on the other hand, was completely deaf. A bomb could have gone off next to him, and he'd feel it, wouldn't, wouldn't hear it. So it was a very, very quiet, uh, at times very quiet household. Except for you and your siblings. My brother and I hear, and... Uh, and, and actually, it's not entirely accurate for me to say that it was quiet because certainly my parents, um, you know, used whatever they, they had in order to be understood by either uh, my brother or I or each other. And so there was sound. There was sound and sometimes it was loud. We, the four of us, had this unique language that part was fingerspelling and in part was sign language and in part was charades and in part was acting it out and mouthing it out and writing it out if you needed to. But it sort of combined <clears throat> everything that the four of us knew when it came to sharing an idea or a thought, communicating. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Frank Stifel, the creator of the movie Ingalore. Ingalore is Frank Stifel's mother. She was born deaf in Germany in 1924 and fled Germany the beginning of the Third Reich in 1940. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Frank, the unique language that you had in your childhood, I would sense had something to do with the motivation in your life to create this very interesting movie about your mother. Am I right? I think that, um, you know, I, I think that probably some, you know, a, a sense that I grew up with that probably isn't shared by everybody is this uh, the, the sense of importance in, in in your ability to communicate and and whether I'm writing or whether I'm speaking uh, or in this case making a film it's you know what am I delivering and is it being understood and so there's there's one thing about making a film for yourself and it's another thing wanting to make sure that uh, that your audience gets it 
I probably have a better, or I don't know, better sense, but I certainly have a sense of uh, of wanting to be understood. This this whole uh, experience was uh, a complete surprise to me. My mother, about five or six years ago, was at a, uh, a deaf convention, and there was a seminar on the deaf experience of the Holocaust. And the only person in the world that really knew her story was her best friend, who was sitting next to her in the audience. And at some point, her friend waved up to the dais and, and said, you have to hear her story. And my, and my mother wouldn't go up. Finally, she was asked to tell her story, and as she says, I delivered it to the back wall. And at one point, she realized, she, she looked down and she realized that everybody in the audience was in tears, at which point she broke down. And so this story that had really kept largely hidden for her entire life was now out. In the audience was a woman whose grandson was a history major at NTID, which is a, a deaf university in Rochester, New York. And she told her grandson about this story, and he had his advisor invite her to lecture. And so now my mother, with a maybe two or three years of education total, is now going to be lecturing at a university. And I went to that lecture. I knew the bits and pieces of her story. I'd never heard it as one narrative. I'd never heard it as one story. And she was spellbinding. I mean, she was amazing. At some point, I thought, well, this is a film. And then, you know, sort of instantly assigned myself the job of directing and producing it. I must say that I didn't have any, any big plans for it other than to give my children. You know, I set out to make this documentary that was, you know, going to be seen uh, by very few people. And then it started to occupy a bigger part of my imagination and um, found myself thinking about it more and more. And it probably became a bigger film than I originally thought it would. It's, it's been shown in, we've been at the Berlin Film Festival. We just got back from the Tel Aviv Documentary Festival. We'll be in Mendocino. My wife and I just seem to travel around the world as the film is accepted in, uh, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. This entire experience was a surprise to me. My mother has had articles written about her. She and I do the Q&A at, uh, at some film festivals when it isn't too far from where she lives. And so uh, this, this 85-year-old woman has been discovered. And this story that never was told um, is now being seen all over the globe. Did you have prior experience making films? I was uh, an executive. I was not a director. I was a, uh, an executive producer. Um, I had my own company for many years, and then I sold it to a larger company, Radical Media. And, um, and so my job was, as an executive producer, it was, it was supervisory. It was to make sure it all went well. It was in support of, of directors that were associated with the company. And again, I didn't have, I, I didn't think of myself as being a director. I didn't have a plan to direct. Um, the story just needed to be, needed to be told. And I think she was 83 at, a, at the point that I decided to do it. So the, uh, she was healthy. She remains healthy, but I didn't know how long that would be so. And so I felt like it needed to be done now. And, uh, and so it sort of propelled me into this, into this role that I had actually spent no time thinking about. It seems from watching uh, the film, Ingalore that your mother was anxious to do it, that she was proud to be able to tell her story, 
she sits at the opening um, of the film and at various times throughout the film. It looks like on a stool in front of a curtain and begins to talk and then moves back and shows the chronology of her life. What does she talk about or what did she talk about while the film was being produced, uh, filmed and, and put together? You mean what what happened during the interview that uh, that didn't make the cut? Is that the question? No, I'm I'm asking about how your mother evolved. I, I would obviously ask her this question, but uh, I think it would be difficult for her to hear me un- unless you were to interpret it. But your observations of her feelings changing uh, from that moment when she uh, spoke at the Deaf University and uh, to putting the film together to when it was first screened? This began with, um, this was all about trust. I turned to her one day and I said, you know, I've got this idea to do this film. Will you do it with me? Will you do it for me? And she said, of course. And so there there was never, I mean, we don't have the relationship where there are things that we don't talk about. And so my being able to ask her intimate things during the interview uh, is no different than what we might talk about at dinner. Uh, and as part of the film, we go back to the village that she left in 1940, and my brother and I go back with her. I think that the three of us sort of felt the sense of adventure, and I think that she was reliving a part of her life with her sons, and I think that that was you know, its own great experience. There was a funny story about my having shown it to her for the first time. I went to Florida... She lives in uh, in Margate, Florida. And I went to Florida. Um, I needed to record a few voiceover lines. And at that point, it was probably about 80% done. And I said, Mom, I'm going to show you, uh, you know, it's not finished, but I'm going to show you a cut. And is there anybody that you want to have see it? And so she chose uh, her husband. My, my father died in 1969. And she had been married to Paul for the last 30 years. And he died a few years years ago. And uh, so she showed it to Paul's daughter and Paul's daughter's daughter. And I put the DVD in, in the machine, and, uh, and I put a camera on my mother in order to record her reaction to it. And so the, the film played, and I, every so often I would look over to my left, and I would see the two women just pulling out tissues. And my mother just sort of stoically looking forward. And at the end of it, two women were very moved. And I turned to my mother, and I said, Well, Mom, what'd you think? And she said, you know, my neck is really fat. You know, she didn't see the film. What she did was what we all would do, would just be to sort of stare at the image of ourselves and criticize it. Um, and only when her friends started to see it and react to it, and and it became something of, of great pride in the deaf community, um, did she start to see the film and start to see um, the impact that her story had on other people. So. Uh, she's probably seen it 15 times now and uh, and is terribly proud of it and terribly proud of me. But I think it took a little bit for her to get used to seeing seeing herself on, on camera for almost the entire film. It's a documentary where there's only one interview subject. There's a lot of archival material. There's the trip to Germany. There are a number of recreations. But she is the only interview subject. Of the archival material, pictures of your mother as a child, there's a section where she's talking with a counselor official, and 
is able to make him think that uh, she can hear. Uh, just a, a fortuitous uh, uh, a circumstance that perhaps established her ability to emigrate to America. Are those actual archives or are they recreated artifacts? No, those, those were all recreated. Those were all recreated in Los Angeles. I had cast a 15-year-old actress. I actually cast her in Berlin when uh, I recreated a chase between the actress playing my mother and two actors playing Nazi cadets as they chased her through the streets of Berlin. This is an incident that happened in, in 1938. And that same actress became an exchange student uh, in America six months later, and I asked her to come to Los Angeles to recreate these other scenes. Well, Frank Stifel, uh, producer, director, creator of the movie of your mother, entitled Ingalore, your mother's name. In watching the movie the other night, it was marvelous, and I'm so pleased to have this opportunity to visit with you. And be you. before we close, tell us what you would like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life. Directing documentaries, as I said before, was something that I just never, if, 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 uh, if you would have asked me five years ago what I might do, um, you know, it probably would have ranked as low as being a cowboy or an astronaut. I, I just never perceived that as being something I'm going to do with the rest of my life. But it is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was a, a remarkable experience. So I've effectively pulled the plug on my grown-up career, and I'm now learning a new one at the age of 62. You know, I find that uh, I fall in love with a, with a story or an idea or, a, or an issue, and I, you know, and I probe it, and I probe it, and I probe it, and you know, if it's still alive a week or two later, then I'll probe it some more. A lot of them fall away. But that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Sounds like fun. Yeah. And can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that you experienced and, and has stuck with you? Ooh. I don't know whether I can point to one eureka moment. I can tell you that I'm having more of them now than I ever had before. Uh, the sense of discovery, uh, the, the sense of, uh, uh, of where, you know, I am in the universe, um, the, the sense of uh, self-knowledge. I feel I'm, I'm closer to, to truths today than I ever was. It's changed, you know, I find myself praying uh, as a pretty regular part of my life. I never did that. I'm not religious. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, you know, I can't give you a picture as to the entity in which I pray to. And even even making even making this film was every single day was this sense of uh I always said that the uh the shot that you have in your head, the shot that you think you're about to get is a shot you will never ever get. And the game is to stay awake and to be aware because the shot that you never saw is the shot that'll be great. And so a lot of what this time has been about has been, you know, being more awake. Kind of like doing radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As someone... Yeah. Being an interviewer. It's exactly right. It's, it's not being locked into that, that yellow legal pad in front of you, but just listening. And that's the color of the pad that I'm writing on. I'm sure. <laughs> um, someone said to me once that once you're committed, it's kind of like getting into a marriage. 
once you're committed, you allow things to happen that you never imagined would occur. I think that's perhaps what you're saying. And one more question, Frank Stifel. Is there an interesting book that you could recommend to our listeners? Somebody sent me a, an email a couple of weeks ago and and, uh, and told me that there is a, a, a fellow that wrote a book about his deaf father, and I live in the same zip code. And he and I had coffee for the first time the other day. If you're interested in the subject, I would say I would recommend Hands of My Father by Myron Ulberg. Um you know, I guess the last book that just, you know, um, you know, took the terra firma away from me was The Road, McCarthy's The Road. Um, and I think more than, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that the thing that consistently and surprisingly always moves me is music. Um, I know nothing about it. Um, I think one of the things that, it, you know, that I got or didn't get with having deaf parents is I have no idea. I don't understand it. I don't understand its math or or how it works or why. Sometimes it makes my feet move and sometimes it makes me cry. Um, I've chosen to remain ignorant and just let it take me. So uh, I think that right now, um, you know, I'm sort of letting uh, my intellect take a little bit of a rest. And I'm just sort of going with uh, with what really does move me. Well, Frank Stifel, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It's been nice to be here. I have a wonderful friend. And I have a wonderful family, too. I'm 100% simple person, happy person. My name is Ingelore Hartz. I was born in Germany. I'm not an angry animal. My life is changing. Frank Stifel is the son of Ingalore and the producer of the movie Ingalore. The books that Frank Stifel recommends are Hand of My Father by Myron Olberg, and The Road by Cormac McCarthy. This interview was recorded on May 29, 2010. Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, 
California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>